Key Economic Releases Affecting Fixed Income Yields Insights into Sectors Influencing Fixed Income Securities How AAM Plans to Capitalize on These Themes for Your Fixed Income Portfolio The Portfolio Fix is a podcast series featuring members of AAM's investment and portfolio management team. We will discuss the timely issues affecting the fixed income investments of our insurance clients. Welcome to another episode of The Portfolio Fix, a podcast series from AAM. My name is Patrick McGeever, and I'm a member of AAM's investment team. Today, as usual, I'll be speaking with Marco Bravo, who will provide AAM's latest views of the economy. And then I'll be joined by Elizabeth Henderson, Director of Corporate Credit, who is going to provide some details on what makes Sustainalytics such a valuable tool when evaluating ESG risks of individual credits and client portfolios. So with that out of the way, welcome, Marco. Thanks, Pat. With month-end and quarter-end taking place last week, it was full of economic releases. Uh, Maybe we can start with uh, GDP. Uh, Can you provide a recap of what we learned last week? Sure. We got the advanced estimate for third quarter GDP, and the economy grew a little bit less than what economists were predicting. GDP increased at an annualized pace of 2%. And at the time of the release, the consensus forecast was calling for a 2.6% increase. But just to put put things in perspective, as recently as one month ago, the consensus forecast was calling for a a 4.6% increase in GDP. So we've definitely saw a slowdown in economic activity. And looking at the numbers, the slowdown seemed to be largely due to supply issues and also most likely due to the increase in the COVID Delta variant that reduced activity. So looking forward a little bit um, with kind of easing concerns surrounding uh, COVID uh, and some signs perhaps that uh, supply disruptions may be easing a little bit, there's still definitely a main issue. The expectation uh, or the consensus forecast right now is for GDP to rebound in the current quarter uh, increasing at around 4.6% for Q4. Okay. Inflation continues to be front and center of investors' minds. Was there anything that caught your attention over the past week? Well, two things, two data points on the inflation front. First, the employment cost index, which is released quarterly, uh, was released for the third quarter. And that index was up 1.3% for the quarter and is up 3.7% over the last 12 months. So very strong increase in employment costs. And if we look into the numbers, really what was driving that was a 1.5% quarter over quarter increase in wages and salaries. And that's the strongest reading we've seen since 1984. So it it's definitely appears to be the case that this tight labor market that we're in is putting pressure on firms to raise wages, which suggests that 
you know, there may be stronger underlying inflation pressures. And I'm sure this caught the Fed's attention with the increase in the employment cost index. The other piece of data on the inflation front uh, was the PCE uh, price index. That came in as expected, 0.3% uh, on the headline number, 0.2% for core on a month overall, month over month basis. Uh, so that would that would seem to suggest that kind of momentum in inflation appears to be moderating somewhat after you know very strong increases that we saw April to uh, April through June, and that uh, inflation should continue to abate as demand starts to normalize and, and production catches up. Uh, but the, the big question is how long and will the rising wages that I just mentioned, you know, lead to higher inflation and longer inflation than what perhaps the market and the Fed is expecting right now. Okay. Well, uh, Marco, you, you mentioned the Fed and I guess we couldn't have a economic conversation here without your thoughts on, on the Fed. Uh, what are the markets tapering expectations right now and how is that influencing rates? Sure. So the Fed is meeting today and tomorrow and they'll, they'll make an announcement tomorrow. Um, no one's expecting any change in the policy with respect to interest rates, but we are expecting the Fed to announce a tapering of their asset purchase program. So right now, the, the Fed is out buying $120 billion a month in treasuries and mortgages. The patient is that they'll begin to reduce those purchases, likely starting in November, of around $15 billion a month, $10 billion in treasuries, $5 billion in mortgage-backed securities. At that pace, the tapering should be completed by mid 2022 and markets kind of pricing that in. And also the question invests have is how soon after they're done tapering, will they begin to raise interest rates? It was the consensus rate increase would occur sometime 2023, a few months ago, uh, Fed chair Powell had made it clear that just because they're going to start tapering doesn't mean they're going to begin raising interest rates shortly thereafter. Uh, but the market seems to believe that. And the market seems to be testing the Fed's resolve in the face of higher inflation pressures. And so market pricing has aggressively pulled forward the first rate increase. In fact, the Fed funds today is pricing in fully pricing in two rate hikes or 50 basis points by the end of 2022. So along with us here at AAM, we'll be kind of paying close attention to what Powell says post meeting uh, to push back from the Fed on kind of current market pricing. Okay. Well, that's very helpful as usual, Marco. Thanks a lot for all that info. You bet. Thank you. Yep. Next up is AAM's Director of Corporate Credit, Elizabeth Henderson. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks, Pat. It's good to have you. Um, 
you were with us a little over a month ago uh, during our podcast, and you spoke about the solutions that AAM is providing to insurance clients that are, are facing ESG challenges. And one of the resources that you highlighted during that conversation was Sustainalytics. So I guess my first question is, why Sustainalytics? Yeah, great question. Um, we like Sustainalytics platform and its methodology because it focuses on the risk to the financial value of the company from um, an ESG perspective, uh, both the risks today and those that they're forecasting. Uh, their building blocks are very important to us. Uh, they include corporate governance, uh, of course, relevant ESG risks for the industry, and then lastly, idiosyncratic events that are unique to the company. So, for example, an accounting scandal would be one of those events. Uh, so as fixed income investors, as you know, uh, our return profile is very asymmetric. Uh, so we spend most of our time identifying risks that would impact our ability to receive scheduled principal and interest payments. So those building blocks uh, are among the most important in our credit al analysis as well. Okay. Um, I think one of the things that folks outside of research um, or the research process may not fully appreciate is that the tools that we as analysts use are constantly evolving. If you look at the sources we used a decade ago to now, it's, it's actually pretty fascinating to see what um, we used back then versus what we use now. And obviously now, one of these resources is Sustainalytics. And maybe you can just explain to the listener how we actually are going to use this resource in our investment process. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And Sustainalytics is really doing the heavy lifting uh, in terms of gathering that information and consolidating it in a, a useful um, tool for us when we're assessing these risks. Uh, so for example, all that goes into the process, uh, companies, incidents, and event track records, uh, quantitative data from external sources that companies are having to, to uh, manage now, um, materiality assessments provided by companies, third-party research, uh, regulatory news, SASB information, uh, assessments from um, the United Nations supported PRI. So there's just a lot that companies um, have to manage in this regard. And then of course we have to use as well. So when we're using this data and Sustainalytics risk scores, um, we're assessing all of that information um, when we're assigning then our internal credit rating for that issuer. So that assessment may change um, that credit rating um, or at a minimum uh, impact. And I talked about this on our other podcasts impact our valuation or risk assessment to uh, the bonds or perhaps uh, the, you know, the what you should be getting paid for 30 year risk, for example, depending on the issues. Um, the other way that we're, we're using this is our insurance strategists and PM groups. Uh, they use the data to screen portfolios depending on the client mandates um, or provide information to various regulatory bodies. We had a a recent request um, from a Bermuda-based client for an inventory of climate-related events or climate-related assets. So uh, it's a very useful tool for us. Yeah, no doubt about it. And it's it's pretty um, it's pretty fascinating to me just how much information we'll have at our fingertips now, uh, far more than we did ten years ago. So that's great. Um, so when I have conversations with 
members of our investment team at AAM. I think most of them are aware of the ESG risks that the energy sector has. They ask me all the time, like, what kind of emissions does a particular issuer have or, or how susceptible is a certain issuer to a potential carbon tax? I don't think, or I think what might be less well known is that there are certainly ESG risks in other sectors too. Um, and you follow the, the telecom and medium, media sector, so maybe you can spend a minute on what ESG factors that industry faces. Sure, and maybe just to take a step back and talk a little bit about what Sustainalytics focuses on in terms of how they capture that. So they're focusing on effectively two what they call dimensions. The first is the exposure to the ESG issues, and then the second is how the company is or can manage those risks. Uh, so Sustainalytics chooses the most relevant ESG risks for that particular industry, and you mentioned energy uh, that that uh, they have they've identified 20 in terms of a total um, uh, selection of risks that they could choose from. Energy has a number of those 20, um, but other industries have uh, you know less uh, ESG risks mm-hmm. or issues to address. So, um, but the one that's present in every single industry is corporate governance. And I talked about it in terms of a building block. So uh, media has that one. And then they also have business ethics, data privacy and security, hum- human capital and product governance. Um, so that compares to energy, which I mentioned has, has more of them, but uh, they both have business ethics, for example. So there, there are some similarities. Um, media companies don't have to deal with, you know, risks like energy, like resource use or, or land use or something. And then in telecom, the risks are largely the same as media, but they also include um, uh, carbon-owned operations, interestingly, because when you think about it, telecom networks need power. And, of course, that uh, is being uh, is, is a focal point in terms of uh, getting more efficient, and then what regulators are, are doing in terms of standards and perhaps costs associated with that. So that's becoming an increasing risk for telecom operators. Um, the The last point I'll make here is that uh, I talked about the not only having the exposure, but also the management. Telecom and media have vers- versus an energy or utility sector, they have pretty low to moderate levels of ESG risk exposure but their management of those risks are, are pretty poor relative to other sectors that have higher exposure. So they have um, a pretty high gap uh, that they could fill if they started to get more, um, more serious or perhaps more formal with the way they're approaching these risks. Okay, and, and do, you, or do you care to maybe provide an example or two of an issuer where these risks might be more relevant when you're analyzing the credit? Yeah, so the two that I would say in, in telecom and media that are more relevant as a fixed income investor when, when, we're, um, when we're analyzing it, the first one is corporate governance, of course, and that's especially uh, relevant in uh, sectors like media cable, given their ownership structures. Uh, companies like Viacom CBS, Comcast, Charter, they all have significant owners, in many cases families, that will influence the board, strategy, capital policy decisions, um, and then the other notable one, I, t- I mentioned data privacy and security. Uh, that's important not only because of you know, fines that they may face if they have data breaches, but also because of um, these a- uh, companies are really asset light. So it's, their brand is very important and valuable 
uh, to the success of the company. So you think about that from the perspective of a company like Equifax Mm -hmm. and then recently T-Mobile dealing with that. So um, from from our perspective, that's something that we, uh, especially in industries like that, that are asset light, take very seriously. And then there's a multitude of other issues, um, human capital, you know, union issues and things like that that will come up, but are uh, less, I would say, um, uh, uh, of a factor in terms of uh, an investment grade investor's perspective, but certainly one that has consequences for the company. So we're we are tracking those too. Okay. That's that's really great, Elizabeth. I think it provides a lot of detail into how and why Sustainalytics will be a useful tool in, in tackling any of the ESG requirements that our clients have. So thank you very much for that information. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to uh, share it. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. We also thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you have any questions, please reach out to your portfolio manager or our marketing team at aamcompany.com. During our next podcast, I'll be joined by Marco and a member of our investment team to discuss a timely issue affecting the fixed income markets. Thank you.